Hello! Welcome back to In Discovery. We trust a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Today we will be discussing the third episode of Star Trek Discovery, Context is for Kings. My name is Ethan, and I'm joined by Kevin. the wonderful Kevin. And let's get into it. So, Context is for Kings, episode three. The true pilot of the series. I agree told with by you. The producers. Um, I agree with you on and that. And our first look at the USS Discovery. Yeah, I did. As like we talked about last time, I found it odd that we had so much set up before we ever got to the main thrust of the story. Mm-hmm. But uh, now we're in the main thrust of the story. And I have yep. to say that just visually, the introduction of the ship, yep. um, it was beautiful. Yeah. They're on the prison transport. Um, things are, are going south. They think they may die. Yep. And suddenly you see this eerie glow and they're in the yes, tractor beam of yep. Very discovery. much like the way the Europa saved, the, or try, attempted to save the uh, Shenzhou the week before that, before that ship was destroyed. Remember that? Yes. The uh, tractor beam. Um, you know, and it was, I'd say a little odd because when I watched, when we got to the end of the episode last, uh, the second episode and we saw the uh, trailer for this one, um, for a moment, based on that trailer, I thought, is Discovery a prison vessel? Because they were, because, car- you know, they obviously didn't make it apparent in the trailer that something would happen and they're getting rescued. So I thought, are they being transported to Discovery? Is this sort of like holding prisoners or something like that? Yeah. So that actually raises an interesting point. Because I, I in rewatching the episode, I, <clears throat> I did find it very odd. Um, just the whole... Taking the prisoners on board and then yeah. giving them free reign of the ship. Right. I was very surprised when they were eating in the mess hall yeah. with all the other, uh, yeah. you know, Starfleet people. That and then you know when Burnham gets into the fight with um, the the uh, the two of them. You know, I was doing some research on uh, Memory Alpha, and apparently the Asian woman is referred to as Psycho. Psycho. Psycho is her name. The other the other the prisoner. The other. Oh, Asian the prisoner. prisoner. Um, I forget what the other guy's name was, but the, it refers to her as Psycho for some reason. Because I don't think she's ever named. Was it spelled the same? Yeah. As the word Psycho. Interesting. Um, well, here's something. I found hmm. that almost everybody in that mess hall is Psycho. Yeah. Well, everybody on... From what we saw as they were making their way to the mess hall, like, everybody on that ship seemed a little... Like, you could tell something odd was going on. And I don't know if it's just the fact that it was from the perspective of these prisoners, who so obviously they're not going to be treated... Very well, but it wasn't basically like seeing a new starship and a new crew. It wasn't the sort of environment that I was used to as a viewer. Yeah, and I think we're also seeing it from Michael Burnham's point of view. And she's sort of infamous for starting the war that they all now have to deal with. Right. Let me ask you this actually really quickly, because we haven't had the chance to discuss it yet. The Discovery itself. The design of the Discovery itself. Mm. Fan? Not a fan? We've seen the design. We've kind of lived with the design for a while. Because they showed it off for the first time like a year and a half ago. Obviously, kind of based off of that abandoned design for the Enterprise. And that in Star Trek Planet of Titans, as it was called. And I think even back then, they called, they called it the Star Destroyer Enterprise. Desi- but designed by Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie, who also who designed a, the Star Destroyer. Yeah. I guess there is a triangular yeah, yeah. similarity in yeah. part of it between um, the Star Destroyer. Well, I, I would... I like it fine. Hmm. I think it it does have um, it's it's unique. It the yeah. sun seemed totally out of place. Yeah. Um. So I do like it, but I will quote Captain Lorca. 
when he uh, destroys the uh, the sister ship, the, the sister science vessel, and the he blind. says, it's just a ship. True. Um, interestingly enough, um, the prototype, I know that the prototype for that Enterprise, they, they built a prototype model. And it has made numerous appearances in the background throughout the other shows. You see it in The Search for Spock. Oh, okay. In Space Dog, very briefly. So just they need a bunch of chips, so they have a model laying around. Right. so they just kind of threw it in the background. And then you also see it, I think, in the graveyard scene for uh, Best of Both Worlds in Next Generation. So, now, off the top of my head, I don't think that it is officially a classified ship. So, obviously, the fan in me is now thinking, well, is that... Does that canonize, you know... Well, of course, I mean, Discovery is canon, but, like, is that that is that one of those ships, you know? I'm going to roll with it, because I like those kinds it's of It's just, you know, whatever, but, you know, it's, it's fun to think about. But, it is, it yeah. is. Um... Something else was uh, one of the prisoners when they were walking looked and noticed the the black. He said, "I haven't seen a black badge, black badge. like that." Yep, that's interesting. I didn't didn't have yeah. Any he thoughts was God. He was standing. Um, was that engineering? Must I'm assuming that was engineering. I didn't even take notice of what he I was guess standing it in front been, of. Yeah, yeah. That that was kind of the first indication that there was something odd. Yeah. So he also had some sort of a look like a bulletproof vest. Yeah. Although I assume there are no bullets on the right. Enterprise. Right. Right after. Right before Commander Landry says, "We gotta, uh, we gotta feed the animals." Uh, another thing, she saw Kayla was her name, um, the woman from the Shenzhou with yes. the uh, in bio, tech bio implant. Some sort of uh, fra- yeah, skeletal implant on her on her head. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, almost reminding me of Seven of Nine or something. Yeah. But. Assuming um, a res- I'm, I'm assuming a result of the battle with the in the Shenzhou six months earlier. Well, I think she had it when we first saw her. I don't believe so. Okay, I don't believe so. Well, I'm curious to know her story because yeah. uh, I'd like to see that that's a character we have not get gotten to know in really in any way. And she's in the same position. She's also she is also she's Discovery's navigator as she was in the Shenzhou. So right. she's in the same. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we've seen her twice now. I hope that we're going to get more from her. Yep. And we also see Saru. So we've got some Shenzhou uh, alumni on there. Yes. And, um, and Saru's kind of treating her very strangely. Yes, he is. Yeah. Saru is now promo- Saru is now on... Shenzhou, as I recall, he was science officer. Now he's made his way to first officer. So he is now first officer of the Discovery. Yes. And I wonder, why would Lorca pick him to be his first officer? I think we may see that yeah. progress as we go. I'm wondering if it has something to do with the threat ganglia. Makes a lot of sense. It is Especially a, in wartime. It is a unique uh, trait yeah. that his species has. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing that... I don't think we saw it in the first episode as ever. I don't, maybe once? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't... I don't think it was... It was um, it just feels pointed like out. We no. maybe saw it, but it wasn't no. explained. Well, there was anything. a moment, I think, when the... Cl- and, you know, to go back to the first one for a second. The second episode, really, when the Klingon fleet was showing up. Which you'd think would be a, a, the great best moment for that to happen. But I don't... He it didn't. He just kind of sat there with like, his mouth wide open, as I recall. Hmm. It was a close-up. But I didn't see any threat ganglia. I wasn't looking for threat ganglia. I Not yet, but, I've, but I've since gone back to look, and I haven't... Uh, okay. You know, I haven't seen them. So hmm. I wonder wondering... if that indicates that Burnham was wrong. Potentially, or maybe the. I'm wondering if the production team decided later, <laughs> later on, to not. Uh, hey, what you do know. you guys think about threat ganglia? Threat, yeah, threat. Ga- well, I know they. I feel like they. I think they mentioned threat ganglia in the beginning. 
in the first episode. Okay. But I don't think we ever see it. Because I think he, cause he, when he talks about his species being, you know, being a prey species and him sensing danger. And she says, well, if you're afraid of everything, you know, what's the fun in exploring? That's There's a good point. To that That's a good point. Yeah. I can see how he could be a very uh, useful ally for Lorca. Who, by the way, we're going to start talking about Lorca now, I think. So after, yeah, so she comes to the bridge. She sees Saru sitting in the captain's seat. And she's escorted right into the captain's ready room where we meet Captain Lorca for the very first time. With his pet tribble and bowl of fortune cookies. Yes. So yeah. I, I think that I don't know that... Well, I had a thought about the Tribble. Well, one thought was, given what we now know is going on on the ship, were the Tribbles a biological weapon of some kind? Um, well, the I know that based on the Trouble with Tribbles, and then later on established by Worf, the, uh, and even in the animated series, the Klingons don't like Tribbles. Tribbles don't like Klingons either because they have that, they freak out whenever there's a Klingon nearby. And, you know, Worf in the in the Trials and Tribulations episode says that the Klingons the Klingons wiped out the Tribble homeworld later mm. on. We don't see it. And Odo jokes and Odo jokes with him, you know, is that uh, you know, do the Klingons still sing songs at the Great Tribble Hunt? Wow. So the Klingons have wiped out So perhaps Lorca has made an ally, a powerful ally in the Tribbles. Potentially. Potentially. I love it. Um but yeah, the tr- but the the interesting thing is that it would have my guess is it would have to be some kind of genetically engineered tribble because it's not it doesn't reproduce. All tribbles reproduce. That one, right? For some reason. So you know, my it's like it's if one because tri- I think they say like you know one tribble means hundreds of little tribbles. Yes, my and my thought unless is unless he's storing them someplace. Perhaps he, you know, splices their genes, makes them reproduce at a fast rate, then says, "Now this is how you will get your revenge, tribble." And then the tribble looks up and says. It's, and then he beams them over, and they maybe. take down the Klingons. I, mean, I expect that as a series climax. It's odd to me that you know what has what how the Tribbles have been treated over the past few films, and even you know on Enterprise. Like uh, we've just seen, we've seen Flocks with one, we've seen Scotty with one. Like we've seen like single Bones with one, and just single Tribbles. And I'm like, why is that there? Is it just like, hey fans, here's an Easter egg, or is it just is it there for a reason? Yeah, I mean, I do actually like when these species get woven throughout Star Trek. Um, So, and they are cute, and they're probably very easy for the the special effects team to throw together a turbo. And they're adorable. Yeah, we all love, I mean, we all, they are one of the most beloved species in the franchise, I guess. Yeah. You know, I, I like them, but I'm, you know, I'm not. Yeah. But, um. They, they, yeah, again, we all know. That it's important to have cute aliens. Look at the porgs. So Lorca has a tribble, and he's got, and it's and he's got fortune cookies. Strangely yeah. enough, which is family, which is a family business dating back to the twenty second century. Yeah. So I think yeah. here we get our introduction to the character, and um, I think we have a lot of symbolism. I don't think that it's an accident that he has fortune cookies that yeah. don't have a fortune in them. Right. They are empty fortune cookies. Yep. Um, because it seems they really draw attention to it, the fortune cookies, and they keep showing up. So I think that we may be able to put this together better as we go through, but a couple of thoughts that I had about it were either, um, what do fortunes tell you? Fortunes tell you something about your immediate future. And the group tells that with Lorca, there's no future there for some reason. Uh, or there's no wisdom in Lorca. There's no nugget of knowledge that you're going to get that Michael or anyone's going to get from him. Lorca notes that before hunger, need, and, and want. want were wiped out, 
yes. by the future. Correct. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that that was a thriving business. Yes. And he said, but hunger, need, and want are back they because of the war. Turner. Yes. And he puts that on her. Yes. yes. Um, so also, here's a situation where he Stanley had a business that was successful, mm-hmm. and it was this peaceful progress that that made yep. them obsolete, and now. Because of the war, it's almost as if he also is no longer obsolete. He now is in this position of prominence because he yep. is, as we were finding out, he is, a, I don't want to say a warmonger, but he's certainly enthusiastic no, he's, about he's a, war. He's a, different, he's a different kind of Starfleet captain than we've seen, you know, when we've seen Starfleet captains, you know, deal with war in the past. And it's, it's you know, and as established in the past, you know, Star, war makes Starfleet captains do odd things. And it makes me wonder what kind of a captain would he, was he, you know, before this war even got started. It seems like this is something he's really, really into. Yeah, I can't, yeah. Ima- I can't even imagine him without this. I couldn't see him being a Picard-like diplomat. No, and... I mean, I could easily picture him, you know, hunting down the Zindi. Oh yeah, I could to- or being absolutely or going Edison, being a Mako Baltazar Edison those days, style. You know, assuming he was, but you know, that's, that's over a hundred years ago, but. Um, yeah, very, very, very different kind of captains. Go um, ahead. Just... So one more symbolism that I noticed there. So we meet him. There, the two prominent things. We have the fortune cookies, yep. and then we have the lights. That's right. He doesn't like the light. Yes, he doesn't yes. like the light. Now, why doesn't he like the light? He doesn't like the light because, as he says, a battle injury keeps him in darkness. So mm-hmm. a battle injury suffered at the Battle of the Binary Stars. Right. So... We've also got another situation where generally well, was darkness... He at, was he there? Was he at the Battle of Binary Stars? Oh, uh, okay. I assume, assume because maybe. I don't know how many battles Starfleet gets into. Well, don't forget, that's six months prior, so you have to assume there was something that's been... Oh, fair since. point. So yeah. a, a battle in this war. Yes. But... So battle injury and darkness generally is symbolizing, you know, like darkness of the soul, moral darkness. Yeah. Um... So here it is. This war has pushed him into the darkness, and here he is bringing other people into the darkness with him. It 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 reminded me of you know it was it was we heard a similar thing with um, Shinzon in Nemesis, Picard's clone. He didn't like the light either, and he was human. Mm. You know, he. I remember when they go to meet him, he says, uh, "I hope you'll forgive the darkness. We're not comfortable in the light." So there's this whole like trend and trek of them not of people not like some people of baddies or guys with like weird past not enjoying the light. Yes, it's 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 much. sort of um yeah. symbolism one oh one. Yeah. Very strange. Um it's interesting also is just the the way that uh Lorca talks to Burnham. Mm-hmm. Um he says, <clears throat> Now what am I gonna do with you? Yeah. And it, we've we've seen this Again and again, where he very much sees people as how can he use them? How can he advance his cause by yep. in, in bringing that person into it? He's he's very much transactional. You're a person. What can you do for me? How can you yeah. help me? Right. He even says, I will use you or anything else to win this war. So interesting also, use you or anything else. Mm-hmm. Almost as if people are things for him just to get this done and we see more of that so he asks her about her level of her ability in quantum physics and you know because he, he points out that it's going to take about three days for the shuttle to be safe 
for the shuttle to safely navigate outside again. So he figures as long as you're here, you know, I'm going to use you. And, um, you know, she declines, but he insists. And so she's basically, it's not, she's not granted a field commission, but she's assigned to some quarters where we meet, uh, Cadet Tilly. Yes, Cadet Sylvia Tilly. But one thing you pointed out before we began recording was the color of her uniform. Not uh, not Tilly's uniform, the co- of um, Burnham. What she's wearing. You said yeah. it's like it's, you know. It's a Kirk mustard, yeah. I feel. And I think that that's important because as we see, <clears throat> as we get more into Lorca at the end yeah. when they have their, their talk, I, I, I see a lot of Kirk in Lorca. Yeah. I'll, I'll explain that. I guess we'll you see a lot of Kirk and Lorca, really. Yes. Well, explain. So when we when, at the end when he talks about how um, I think the exact quote is universal law is for lackeys, context is for kings. I feel that the episode uh, title he says. Yes, he does. He says the episode title. What, what um, does he say before context is for kings? Universal law is for lackeys. So I assume that'll be an episode title at some point. So this idea that right. If you follow, you can follow regulation, and that's for lackeys. That's for lower people. Right. But if you want to be king, you need to consider the context of a situation. You right. need to consider everything that's happening at once and be able to make a snap decision that right. is just go with your gut, given what's happening. And I think that's a very Kirk-like well, uh, captain Plus, philosophy. you also have to assume in wartime, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, it's wartime. So, you know, if there are any rules, now's the time to start bending them, to kind of do whatever you have to do to win this war, right? I would say so, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, well, I mean... Maybe. Maybe. I mean, if definitely, if you talk to Lorca, yes. I mean, I think Picard in the same war wouldn't wouldn't uh, feel that way. Yeah. Um, Cadet Sylvia Tilly. Now, right off the bat, I like her. I can tell that she's going to be the kind of comic relief. I kind of looked at her as the sort of stand-in for the for the newbies those who might be looking at the this for anybody who may be watching the show as their first foray into trek i kind of see her being a good because she's a cadet this is her first time out in space it's her first ship so all of this is new to her so i kind of see her as a sort of mirror to those audience members who may not be as familiar or familiar at all um with the franchise the other thing about it that i like that i just want to quickly point out is to me she's the better version of what ensign hoshi sato should have been. Explain. Sato didn't like being in space. She didn't want to be in space. She was afraid of everything. She knows space sickness, everything. Uh-huh. And, but to me, the it just, you know, maybe it's just the actress. I'm sorry, Linda Park. I know you're not listening, but I don't, well, I don't think she was written well to kind of, you know, express that. But Tilly, to me, you know, she clearly wants to be in space and she's excited, but there's a bit of a nervousness because this is my, this is her first time. This is her first time out in space, and so I feel like she kind of represents that new that space first timer really well, much better than I think they tried with with uh, with Hoshi. I mean, if it's even worth comparing, I mean, that's just immediately what I thought of when I first met her. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I definitely was struck by how awkward she is socially because yeah. it's yeah, yeah. not. Some a char- I don't think we've seen many awkward characters in Star no. Trek. I mean, maybe Geordi when he was trying to, um, you know, court the ladies. He he yeah. certainly was awkward. I don't want to say court the ladies on a fucking podcast. I'm doing that again. <laughs> um, All right, hold on. So the thing that surprised me is she's a really awkward 
character, very socially yeah. awkward. And we, socially I think we've really awkward. only seen that before with maybe with Jordy. Um, in in his romantic life, he he was extremely awkward. But I don't know. Star Trek characters seem to be pretty socially think, with it. I think Tilly is going to be the one that will kind of break down that wall with Burnham. Like I think the two of them are going to form a really good because, like, despite the fact what Burnham has done. Um, and you know, Tilly of course figures out who she is because when they introduce each other, she says, "My first name is Michael," mm. and she says, "It's an odd name for a woman." The only Michael I know is Michael Burnham, the mutineer. You're not her, are you? That was funny. That was, and that it was yeah, it was really funny. But there was like that brief moment of uncomfortableness. But I feel like she's going to be the one who will just kind of look past all of that and just see her for who she really is. Yeah, and I and think I was, that she's really going to break down that wall. I think she's starting to break down the wall a little yeah. bit because Michael was very standoffish at first, and then well, because Michael doesn't want to be there. Yes, you know she doesn't. She just wants to get the hell out of there and just. She wants to take her punishment. It's right. sort of noble in that way that she feels that she deserves it and she shouldn't it's, take it. It's strange that she's not, you know, kind of, you know, resisting that and wanting to. Well, I think you know, as we talked dispute about that basically, as we talked about last time, yeah, there's nothing to dispute. Her plan was bad. Her actions were bad. Yeah. My favorite, I mean, I love that, I love that line when she says, you know, I'm going to call you Mickey. And she's like, no, you won't. Yeah, I mean, that was a little forward for anyone, I feel right. Um And then, like, halfway into that conversation, um, Discovery goes to Black Alert. And I'm like, we've seen Red Alert, we've seen Yellow Alert, but I'm like, Black Alert. Mm. Which I thought was very, very strange. And, um, yes, it was very classified because, uh, Tilly, when Michael asked Tilly what a black alert was, yeah. she asked something like, are you cleared for that? You weren't and briefed. Yeah, you weren't briefed, so no, I can't okay. tell you. I'm surprised that she was even briefed because she's a cadet. It's a good point. You know, I'm surprised she's, she's even on, in on the inside. And so the ship goes to black alert. So, you know, obviously the room gets, doesn't get black, but it gets really dark. Mm-hmm. And, Which always um, surprised me why in Star Trek, things are going down. Yeah. We have a situation. Let's immediately dim the lights. <laughs> so no one can carry out their red, duties. Like red alert. Yes. Well, well flashlights well, too and really throw people off. What I, what I've, what, and I, I thought it was really funny. What I did notice in uh, Star Trek Beyond, when you see the Enterprise at red alert on the outside, you can see in, you can see the red light pulsating <laughs> from the inside. So it's like the enemy knows the ship's, <laughs> the ship's on some kind of tactical alert. And I don't think you want them to know. I don't. I would not think you'd want the enemy to know that, right? And I don't. Right? I think the red flashing light would also raise the heart rate and the anxiety of all your crew members. And but it's right. dramatic for television. It's dramatic for television. Yes, I mean I remember the they had it in the motion picture. And you saw like crew members running from station to station. And I'm just like, you know. Um, so the ship goes to black alert, and you see that sort of liquid condense in the air. Remember that? Yes, it, that was in the Burnham takes the a look early... at it and sort of condense. Then it's sort of like. You know, falls to the deck, and then it's sort of it, it's kind of absorbed, and you just kind of and me. I'm like, what the hell was that? Yeah, it's almost like they yeah. lost gravity, right? Systems for a, a minute, second. Excuse me. Um, which was very, and you know, I, I've got to say this. You know, on that note, I'm not used. I haven't fully adapted to Trek raising mysteries as episodes go. Me, like me asking questions, like, and it's so. It's so refreshing, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm like, what am I watching? It is very, very it's different. Very, very strange. And mysteries maybe I'm not used to this. Mysteries maybe would last, um, you know, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes on right. typical Star Trek, or they would be, um, you know, if a mystery was raised, it would be solved by either Data as Sherlock Holmes or right. Dixon Hill. Right. Exactly. And so, 
But I guess it all has to do with, I mean, if this were one of the older shows and it was focused on the captain's point of view, you know, probably we wouldn't be, there'd be no mysteries at all. Because Burnham's out of the loop. And I've always kind of wondered to myself, like, you know, really quickly, like, imagine, you know, in past Trek shows, like, if you're just, like, a crew member, like, say, like, working on Deck 15. What if you're, like, a crew member, like, working on Deck 15 during, like, the Borg crisis? How much, like, when Picard was assimilated, how much would you actually know is going on? Yeah. You know? Do they even know that Picard was kidnapped? <laughs> like, they, you know... There's a fantastic YouTube series called The Red Shirt I've, Diaries. Yes. That is yeah. just this very question. And a lot of it is the, the character um, in her quarters, just in specific episodes of the original mm-hmm. series, are going down and she just is hearing these little tidbits. It's very, very funny. Yeah. And, and I saw some uh, early on, like when, uh, you know, before we knew much about Discovery, somebody, dis- I forget who it was, somebody described it as sort of the, it must have been somebody attached to the show, as sort of the lower decks version of Trek. There's an episode of Next Gen called Lower Decks that focuses on crew members from the Lower Decks. This is sort of like that almost as a series. Yeah, I remember hearing early on. Yeah. The focus is not going to be the captain. The focus yeah. is going to be on someone lower. Yeah. Which I guess I sort of expected it to be different because we're still getting a lot of scenes of what the captain is up to. Right. Um, so... I think it's sort of this hybrid where we are focused on Burnham, mm. but she's also there for a lot of the main events, and we're getting some scenes of just Lorca, so right. we sort of know what he's up to. Um, and so after this, Burnham runs into Saru eating blueberries, which I thought was interesting. Yes. Walking down the hall with a bowl of blueberries. Yes. Walking down the quarters with a bowl of blueberries. And so we discover that, you know, he was promoted to first officer as a result of his, as a consequence of his actions at the Battle of the Binary Stars. Mm-hmm. Now he says something um, interesting here, which I think is going foreshadowing some confrontation at some point. Yeah. When he says, um, uh, I will do a better job protecting my captain yes, than I, you did. Yep. So I think we're going to perhaps see a situation where he has put to the test. Well, it's even in that episode when the two of them being over to the Klingon ship, I thought to myself, where's the security detail? Why is it just the two of them? You know, why are they letting the captain get go over there? Mm. You know, it's, it was just so. It was very strange. Yeah. Um, I, one thing to note, I really like Saru. He feels like the most Star Trek character. Well, if that you know, makes sense. No, you're right. I mean, but he, you know, he's also that he's also that character, the alien that has to be sort of the mirror for humanity. You know, or he is. I know he's been described as the Spock or Data of the show. He's 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 that character. Yeah, but we're not. The thing is, he's as of now, he's not because those characters like provided some really, you know, the Doctor included on Voyager had those sort of like humorous comic moments. We haven't had that yet with him. No, we have not. You know, at least not, not, well, no, we haven't. No, I, I, but I do like him. He's different because with Spock and Data, you could sort of point the logic, right? Right. Data is a, is an android and Spock is a Vulcan. So they have that. Everything just runs through this logic filter. Mm -hmm. Um, And with uh, Saru, you almost get everything runs through this threat filter. Yep. How threatening is this? Which is different, but I like the the alienness of that, even that that thinking. Yeah. Having someone that thinks in a totally different way. I, I really think that as the season and series progresses, like I can 
Um, I tweeted this to the actor, Doug Jones, and he he liked it. <laughs> um, but I can see, you know, people on YouTube creating Saru montages or the Saru's best lines and stuff like that. Sort of like the flocks. Yeah, like I can the, see him. The flocks I can see love him, that is out there. Yeah, I can see him sort of getting. And he's, and he's you know, have you, did you notice how tall he is? Yeah, so I was gigantic. I was at uh, New York Comic Con. Had the fortunate, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the panel, and he looks like the character. Mm. He is incredibly tall, incredibly thin. Yeah, I mean, incredibly thin. A a stiff wind could knock him over, Um, and he he almost walks sort of like him because he is so long. Well, on on the after show, because he was on, they were on, they were on the after show um, last week. He, and he made an appearance on the after show, and he he said that he's normally six three, but his shoes that he has to wear make him like seven feet tall. Oh, okay. Yeah. The rest of the crew, or yeah, must be short because on the stage he looked. I think we talked about his height last episode, last time. A foot higher, because yeah. yeah, we're both about six three, six yeah, two. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I don't feel that tall though. <laughs> um. So. Um. Burnham makes her way to engineering, where we were in the some awkwardness going. Oh, something you want to cover? Oh, um, and there's some awkwardness the moment she gets assigned to engineering after Saru tells her to go to engineering. She walks in, you know, and this was a scene on the after show um, after the week of the premiere. Everyone's sort of looking at her very strangely, and they're all saying that they, you know, she wants to take a station, and then you know, Cadet Tilly says, "Well, we all have assigned stations." You know, there's this very sort of, like, strange thing going on. Right, it's almost like chemistry class in high school. And right. Someone comes like, over that you don't want to be partners with. Right. And so, in comes Lieutenant... Is it Stamets? Stamets. Stamets. I always want to call him Stamets. Stamets. Who is, right from his introduction, does not, does not seem very likable. Right. You know, he seems like a very... He's, the guy is clearly a scientist Jesus, who resents his experiments being used for, you know, whatever they're being used for. Yes, and he yeah. also seems a bit arrogant. Yeah. He definitely doesn't um, yep. think that Burnham's going to have any abilities that could help him in any way. Yeah. And it's clear right off the bat, like, you know, he doesn't like her. Um, so uh, he's, he's a very... You know, I'm not sure how I feel about him just yet. You know, because it's interesting because, you know, just to kind of go down this road for a second, because of the position that Burnham finds herself in, I find myself, aside from, you know, Tilly, you're like, I don't know how I feel about this cruise yet because they're all treating her in a very, in a very odd way just because of what she did. So, like, you're not getting a, you're not getting a, a very sort of positive introduction to the characters yet. Because you're yeah. all seeing it, for, you're seeing it all strictly from her point of view. And you're like, right. wow, this guy, these people are being kind of, they're being kind of jerks. Yeah, and yeah. then, but that goes us to the question of, is Burnham, is she the quote-unquote hero here? Is she right. the one that we're supposed to identify with and like? Uh, you know, because I don't, if that's true, I don't know how successful they have been so far. Well, I'm hoping that, you know, as the show goes on, that Burnham will, you know, maybe... Maybe be recognized, you know, as maybe potentially being a hero or at least sort of, you know, maybe somehow redeems herself. You know, the again, the interesting thing to me is that she was very adamant in the the first episode about what she had to do being right. But now she's just kind of like, 
you know, whatever. Like, I, I, I guess. Like, yeah. Right. You know. So it's not like she's like, not to say that she has to defend herself, but she feels like she didn't do anything wrong. Right. And, and I, it could be interesting know. to watch her character um, grow and change. Yeah. Um, that's another thing that's new to Star Trek is right. characters are pretty static in the Star Trek um, series. Aside from yeah. maybe Data. Yep. Um, they sort of, this is what they are and they can move within an episode a little bit one way or the other, but they always sort of come back to that baseline of like, this is who right. the character is. Yeah. Um, so this is another new thing and I think it's it's the nature of television now. You can't really do a show where the characters stay the same. No. You have to have some growth and change. So we find out that, you know, uh, uh, Stamets is, is accessing an area of the ship that only people with a breath print are allowed in. So, so she cannot... Burnham cannot go in there. So here's another question. You're like, you know, what the hell's going on over here? Right. Which and I we, thought was very, very strange. Right. And we, we definitely get the sense that something is up. We've had that black alert. Right. Um, and he talks about Spearing 900 and mm-hmm. when he's on his call with yep. his colleague and he's talking about pushing the ship, pushing some limit. Right. So something's going on and, and we, we do not know what. And it's interesting, even when he gives... Burnham some something to do with some lines of code. He gives her very minimal information. He doesn't right. even tell her um, what the general topic is. She comes to him and says, "Is this mm-hmm. physics or biology?" Right. And so, let, you know, shortly after that, you know, we cut to Burnham being back in her quarters with Tilly. Tilly's asleep. She's of course drooling all over her pillow, <laughs> and she uses that to gain access to that area. Yes, I was surprised how easily fooled the breath scanner was. Yeah. But it was pretty clever as an attempt. You get some drool on the rag and then you puff air through it. It's... I mean, if the iPhone X going to have facial recognition, you know, come on. Uh, yeah, this going to make it a little bit more complicated. This one is spit recognition. <laughs> spit recognition. So she enters this, uh, it's, like a, it's, it's a garden. She enters a garden, basically. Yes. And, and it's uh, a room full of fungi, as we call it. I guess so. I didn't know that at the time, and my first thought was, "Is this the Genesis project?" I had it's weird. I have the it's weird. I had the same thought. Well, because they kept showing her like in the garden the, on the trails, and I'm like, I'm like, what the fuck is that? I really thought it was early like, why Genesis. Is this? Yeah, and what is this? They were doing it on a small scale, terraforming yeah. in some way. So we're not quite sure what it is just yet. And then you know we see Lorca receive a uh, communication in his ready room, to which he returns to engineering with. Saru would aside. Yep. And mentions that the USS, their sister ship, the USS Glenn, um, something's gone wrong. Right. Everyone's been killed. And this is where Stamets' colleague that was pushing the spearing limit. Who we saw talking to early, which we didn't mention. Yes. Um, He was on that ship doing the same exact science whatever it is as the discovery except he was at a higher and more advanced level with it one thing in the scene that kind of stuck out to me is this really small thing even though saru was there i love the fact that just like on the shenzo and even other shows i love that they're calling first i love that they brought back calling first officer number one Hmm. i I really kind of missed that and i love that they started doing that again i just gotta point that out yeah it's uh, number one number one number one number one um, yeah. So... And they, this is where we get a nice word, number one, Saru, uh, is called on to for his um, input on uh, yep. Burnham's potential 
contribution to this away team. And uh, he says that she's the smartest officer, Starfleet officer that he knows. What's um, what's interesting to me too is that um, Stamets. You can tell he's a passionate person, but the way he speaks to Lorca, it's almost like there's no sort of respecting the chain of command at all. He's utterly resentful to Lorca right from the beginning. Yes, I was surprised at the tone that he took with the captain. Right. Um, so then once Lorca leaves, mm-hmm. there's uh, a conversation between Stamets and Michael Burnham. Right. Where he starts to talk about biology as physics. Yep. And I think we start to get at what's going on in the ship in some way. And he says, at a molecular level, there's no difference between biology and physics. Because they're all just atoms, I guess is his point. Right. I'm not a science person. Yeah. Um, But the other interesting thing he says is that that it's become war over diplomacy and exploration. Mm-hmm. And that Lorca always gets what he wants. Yeah. Um, he calls him in the shuttle a warmonger. He does call him a warmonger. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's it's definitely that idea that whatever science is going on uh, is being co-opted and yeah. turned into a weapon. Which, interestingly, right. is just like the Genesis Project. Exactly. And it's the same situation between a scientist and it well it kind of parallels that argument that they have in the wrath of khan you know with mccoy and spock where mccoy says you know um you know what if this thing were used where life already exists and spock says well it would destroy such life in favor of its new matrix and they just as mccoy calls it universal armageddon yeah 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 so this is a familiar theme with the federation it's balanced between its mission of diplomacy and exploration and science and Uh, the necessity of, of it being a uh, engaging in war from time to time. Mm-hmm. So they arrive in the Glen to to something that's almost out of a Resident Evil game. It, it is pure it is mutilation. Mutilation. Um, you know the the there you know the, there are dead bodies of the crew kind of strewn all over the place. There's blood. It's it's for Trek. It's extremely disturbing and very gory it is extremely you know? disturbing i think they're taking a, a classic scene that we've seen in track we have a disabled federation ship yeah we have the crew yeah. with their flashlights and they're trying to figure out what went wrong yeah. but what they find is so much more gruesome than we've seen the crew is utterly like deformed it's almost like they went through the the uh the expanse yeah it's as yeah. if they're they're in a cellular level they just have been shredded yeah yeah, yeah. um and you know, there's this, you know, there there are huge like gaping holes like in the bulkheads and whatnot. So scratches, scratches, scratches. Burnham catches sight of something in one of the cracks in the walls. It something doesn't move. mention it. Doesn't, which I doesn't very mention strange. it. Does not mention it. Um, and we come upon a few dead Klingons, which are not they are not deformed in any sort of way. No, they've clearly been killed by some. Um, creature and then moments later, we come upon a Klingon that is still alive. Yes. The- Best Klingon. Which was interesting because, remember, he they, he comes around the corner, he looks at them, doesn't attack, he just kind of shushes them. Yeah, which I think is an indication to us that something if a Klingon is gonna, If a Klingon is not going to attack something, then... Or, you know, or not attack something, but yeah, something is off, basically, as you say. 
Yes, and yeah. and for a Klingon to shush anyone. Yeah, and I guess the least the Klingon hand gesture for shushing is the same. Thankfully, <laughs> um, and even the even the sound. Shh. Uh, no Klingon translation for shh. Um, and then he ultimately, and then moments like seconds later, gets pulled right down the hall by what we can only assume was that same thing that uh, Michael saw on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna call it a space bear. For space, this, and it, well, it turns out time. to be now when I yeah, it turns out to be some large four legged creature, very dangerous, huge, roaring and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I, and I thought to myself, is it a Vulcan Salot? Is it? Now, because there were Klingons, I thought to myself, is this a Targ gone loose? Like, what, you know, what is this thing? Um, but, you know, it chases them down the hall, finally, you know, chases them all the way back to the shuttle. Mm-hmm. They, did that look something like that? No, I was going to say, my thought when I first saw it was, this looks like a, I believe they're dust mites. Yeah. When dust mites, and you see the close-up of them, they have that very puffy body and those legs right. and, the, yeah, yeah. and the tube face. And that was my immediate thought was this is a dust mite. Right. But it's gigantic. Um So you know, on board the Glen, you know, they grab this, you know, Lorca asks them to retrieve a certain piece of technology before the Klingons do. Right. Because it seems to be fundamentally yeah. important to whatever their science, their secret science that they're up to so is. So they've got it. This gigantic, as we're just call it a space bear for now. Chases them down the, down the corridor, all the mm-hmm. way back to the shuttle. You know, they get on board their shuttle and they and they take off. Right. So here's the thing, though. This very extensive yeah. chase. It is, and it's very it actiony in its takes out a the direction takes out a uh, a red shirt, I guess we could say. Yeah, it takes out a red shirt or a red shoulder, but they don't red have red, so no, we don't know. We, no, we, don't we know. can't predict who's going to die. If he was on the Enterprise, he'd probably be a red shirt. Now, there's an interesting theme that comes up during this chase that I found, which was yep. very action for a. Star Trek episode, which I think uh-huh. is worth noting. Yep. Um, here we have Michael Burnham is, you know, risks her life to draw the space bear attention away from the rest of the crew, and she goes up a ladder chute, and then she's climbing through some sort of an air duct. And no, she's in the Jeffries tube. Oh yeah, the Jeffries she's tube. In the Jeffries tube. So that was that something that you knew what a Jeffries tube was? How do you not know what a Jeffries tube is? I don't know. <laughs> they car- they crawl through them in all the other shows. They're calling them Jeffrey Tubes the Jeff- there? The Je- named for Matt Jeffries, who designed the Enterprise. The Jeffries Tubes. Okay. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, you got me yeah. there. Um, so here's the thing. She's going through and she's reciting uh, Alice in Wonderland. Yes. Bits. Um, yes. She's saying how she will become small enough that she can go through the hole and then go through the gate. And it's all from Alice in Wonderland. Which, this is another theme that I wanted to kind of track. is Or, or this repeating... Uh, uh, allusion to Alice in Wonderland because yep. it will come up again. So I don't know what this is telling us about Michael. I don't know if she's, their situation is going to get so bizarre on Discovery that it will be as if she is through the looking glass and she's on the other side of something. Right. Um, but I expect that will be significant in some way. And we'll find out more about that later when she talks about her book and everyone's yeah. so surprised she has a book. So they make it back to Discovery um, there's a nice tender moment between uh, Michael and Saru. Yep, Saru um, gives her the respect and uh, appreciation. You know, it seems like she almost tears up. Yep. Um, so that was nice. Again, I really like Saru. Yeah, he's... Um, yeah, I, I, I do like him a lot myself. And so, um, takes her right into the captain's ready room, where there is a very interesting discussion between her and uh, Lorca. 
Yeah, she she straight up accuses Lorca of developing biological weapons against the Geneva Protocols of 1928 and 2155. Because Geneva, for some reason, is still a popular spot to develop protocols. And this is right after Lorca offers her a position on the ship. Yes, which she turns down. Which she turns down. She's very hell-bent on getting her punishment. Taking her punishment, serving her time... um, and yeah, she just really wants to. The Geneva Protocol of twenty one fifty five. Yes, was Archer present for that? I wonder. I, I would send Archer to negotiate a Geneva uh, Protocol. Yes. Um, so yeah, some sort of a bio weapon, she says. Yes. Um, and he interestingly points out to her that you you like to be right, but I bet you hate to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to prove to her that she actually is unfounded. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. In her accusation. So he takes her down to engineering and shows her what the real deal is. Yeah, shows her what the real deal is. And I. this is a part that, I, you know, suspension of disbelief is good to yeah. have when you watch sci-fi. Right. But I'm, I guess I'm not used to having to suspend my disbelief this much in Star Trek for some right, reason. Right. I can roll with transporters mm-hmm. and uh, all these other things. But on this device um i'm having a real hard time with it simply because there's no organic matter in space right no not that we know of right okay because that's what's getting (laughs) me now this is based on science that has to do with mushrooms well we'll we'll explain what it does explain what this thing does so there is uh these biological organisms that fill all of space yes from what i understand this is what they're growing in that garden that she goes right. into earlier. Yes. And all these biological the organisms are connected in this web throughout all of space. Yes. Now, this is actually based on um, mushrooms. Because yeah. we, we see mushrooms come out of the ground, but what we don't know is the underground. Is well, and Stamets is a fungi. 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 Yes. Is a fungi specialist. Yes. And do you remember what his line was? He says something that's like the underpinnings. It's like the under. It's like the web. Of space. Yes, it is a yes. web of space. It's a web of space. Because web space. In, in uh, What we have is, uh, we see the mushrooms pop up, but underground, yeah. there's this layer, almost, of yeah. of whatever mushrooms pop out of. Right, right. So right. they actually, in theory, theorize that they could communicate somehow through that web, these different yep. mushrooms in different places. So they're using that science and applying it to develop this idea for the the transporter where somehow they're tapping into that web and then they are being transported through those organisms right. in some way. Right. And among the places he demonstrates to take her to is, Ro- is Romulus. Yeah, no. He takes her to a couple of different places. Right, but here's the thing I didn't get. Yeah. The effect was so strange on yeah. those scenes. Was she physically really there? That's I wasn't sure. And at this point in the timeline, you know... They know who the Romulans are. I don't know if we've visited... We, I don't believe we've visited Romulus just yet. So how do we, it's sort of like, how do we know what that looks like? Have they experimented with it and they've shown up on the on Romulus quickly and nobody knows about it, so now there's an image of it they can go to. Right, or was she physically you know? on Romulus? What, or that, well, that's the question. Was she actually there? Or would they have to know where Romulus is to ask the... They have sure they couldn't tell the organisms. Let's go to Romulus. They wouldn't right. know what Romulus was. Exactly. They'd need some he's, coordinates he's, he's, or something. Yeah, he's demonstrating it. Um... But that was very strange, and um, I guess this is if this is what they're working on this biological, tr- you know, well, he met- thrust 
Well, that's yeah, super fast. He mentions that this can be applied to the ship itself and have it travel great distances in the blink of an eye. Yeah, I guess. Which, um, and the moment he said that, I thought to myself, if I go to like a, you know, there's a Trek message board I post at, trekpbs.com. So if I, I said, I'm going to go there, you know, I said, I know what I'm going to find when I go there. Somebody's going to bring this up and they're going to say, well, where was this technology 90 years from now when they wanted to get Voyager home? From the Delta Quadrant. Why well, did they, you know... Yeah, I, I'm going to assume, given that we've already seen one disaster yeah, with this, that right. this is a technology that is abandoned as... Right. On, at some point, and we'll see the story of how that happens, I'm right. sure. I'm sure that... Well, um, my... Yeah, it, wouldn't be mean, an, it would not be an oversight. Well, and like you, you know, my, my theory on that is, if it's even something we're speculating about, I mean, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really make a difference to me, but, you know, I, I have to assume that, you know, this is a technology that maybe is eventually becomes outlawed because we may find out that it was harmful in some way. Right. Because Starfleet's all about seeking out new life, as we know. Um, Mm -hmm. Or does it get so classified that very few in Starfleet even ever know about it? Right. Or through what Starfleet's doing, do they somehow actually destroy the entire web? Right. In some way. So it just doesn't, they they wipe out these these organisms or something. Um, But that's a minor detail. And it's not, you know, obviously we know the real answer. It wasn't written yet. Right. There are are plenty of, but I do expect that it must still make sense. They'll put Mm -hmm. something in the story where this does not survive. That would be odd. Right. So um, she ends up, you know, I think begrudgingly accepting the position. Yeah, well, I mean, he really lays it on pretty thick as far as um, explaining why she's there, which, right. mm, which, which I think makes it seem as though he he orchestrated everything. He orchestrated it with their ship. Now, if he, he orchestrated really... it, <laughs> wow, so, <clears throat> he did indeed. So. Yeah. If you remember back to the first scene, also the so the prisoners look outside and they see those organisms on the windows of their yes. prison transport. Correct. So he, I think he does somehow send them to do the. So, so he has orchestrated this whole thing, and he says why. Yep. He says that what Burnham did at the Battle of the Binary Stars showed that she uh, has a predictive mind. She's able to yep. predict what's going to happen and then adjust accordingly, which he seems yep. to have as a major um, quality that he looks for. So, um, it, yeah, it's, it's, he's definitely raising a lot of questions and he's one of these captains who I just, I'm like, do I trust this guy? You know, do I like him? I don't know. You know, he's just doing all these odd things that's just not atypical, I think, of a Starfleet captain. But as I said earlier, war makes Starfleet captains do strange yeah, things. Yeah, and I still will argue that I think he's almost, uh, an extreme version of Kirk. Yeah, where Kirk was He's willing the war to version of Kirk basically. Just, Kirk's willing to throw the rule book out the window for yeah. the, to do what the situation calls for, and then face right. the consequences later. Right. Now, we could almost say Lorca perhaps will turn out to be. Imagine if Kirk was not checked by his sort of moral right, right. and ethical um, mindset, and he was sort of free reign of his just um, accomplishment and. I can't finish this sentence. <laughs> um, so she makes her way back to her quarters with Cadet Tilly. Am I skipping something? Yeah. The, well, the whole universal law is for lackeys. We already talked about that, huh? 
we that's, did. That's when he did. says that. We did, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, we should we mention it just because it's in the... Well, go ahead, go ahead. Um, so, again, he says that context is for kings. Wait, he says universal law is for lackeys. Context is for kings. Because yeah. really what he sees about Michael Burnham is um, this idea that she's able to read a situation, consider all the options, think fast, and then make the snap decision that needs to be made, even at great sacrifice to herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that he is... He thinks that Burnham and himself share this quality. I think he's misreading her in a way, because I do think that she... She made that snap decision at that point, but I think the circumstances were very specific and that he is kind of taking this for she's willing to break the rules to, yep. to get a job done, which may be true, but I think she's going to be ruled by this morality and ethics that I don't believe we're going to see in Lorca. Yeah. Not a bad observation, I think. I think so. Um... So back in their quarters, um, uh, Burnham and Tilly, Burnham's unpacking her stuff because now she's obviously going to be staying. She has a co- she has an actual book, an her. actual book, an actual book. Tilly's very surprised. Tilly's very surprised because she says that they're very rare. Yeah, books are very rare. And you know, the part that jumped out at me is that she says, "My mother used to read this to me and her son." Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Her mother is Amanda. Mm. And she, she makes reference over the fact that she's like, we were the only two humans. My foster mother read this to me and her My foster mother read this to me and her son. And she mentions that her and her foster mother were the only humans. We know who her father is, which is Sarek. Yes. Her mother would be Amanda. Yes. So she's making a Spock reference. She is, isn't she? She's making a Spock reference without name dropping him. Mm-hmm. Which I think is very, very cool. I can yeah. see Spock being exposed. And the thing to is, Alice it's one of those things that even if even if you're not a fan, if you don't know, it, it, nothing is lost on that. You don't know what shit with that. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, that was totally yeah. fine. But here's the thing: it makes a lot of sense that Spock would be exposed to Alice in Wonderland because remember how fast he fell in with that group of hippies. Yeah. <laughs> well, and offhand, does he make any references to Alice in Wonderland throughout the? Uh... Not that I can think of, um, but I think it is think interesting, head, yeah. once again, that there's this Alice in Wonderland theme. It's the only book she has. I think we're going to keep seeing this, and yeah. what she says is what she's taken from it is that logic can't be trusted. Sometimes mm-hmm. up is down, down is up, and lost is found. Now, yeah. could be a simple thing of she has now found her home and her place and her purpose on yeah. the discovery, or it could be more than that. So one of the link to, to kind of wrap this up you know i guess the 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 lingering question that i have is and you know maybe it's not worth mentioning but um or speculating about but you know why exactly would you have a convicted criminal being roommates with a cadet mm, you know that's an interesting I'm idea wondering you know does it because here's the thing if she's a criminal right yes they may as well throw her in the brig yes or yes now, despite the fact that she's being used, because when she's when she's put into those, to those quarters by Commander Landry in the beginning, she says, you know, she tells her the time she has to work, but out, outside of that, she's confined to quarters. Mm-hmm. But why not the brig? 
Yeah, but she's usually, gonna she's gonna be here. I mean, maybe it's nothing, but I'm just she's yeah, gonna be in here mean. for a reason because you have those other criminals, right? They didn't even put the other criminals in the brig, by the way. They were free to roam the mess hall, as far as we know. Yes, yeah. Um, but when they could find people to quarters, usually there's a security officer stationed outside their room, right. correct? So that could be going on, though. I don't see any indications of that. Um, yeah. The only thought I could have is maybe because Tilly is so low level, so new. Yeah. There's not much that um, Burnham could uh, get out of her or something. But no, yeah. she she's been briefed also. But you are you are convinced that uh, Lorca um, purposefully you know let that show pilot die to divert the. Uh... Oh yeah, no. I do think, you think he that's would. What, do you think that happened? I mean, uh, you know, you know. Did Lorca let that shuttle pilot die in order to divert the prison ship? I think he would. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he says, and I'm not sure, this is a good... If he does, I think we already have our answer to his true nature. Yeah, well, he says, yeah. Starfleet has given me um, permission to fight this war in any way I see, I see fit. He says yeah. something like that. Now, that leads me to the question, do you think Starfleet really knows that he's going to these extreme measures? Let's assume he is, did kill that, um, the pilot. Uh, and he is, you know, engaging in this um, unsafe and, uh, as we'll find out, uh, perhaps unethical research. Yep. Do you think Starfleet is actually aware? Well, he has a line, I think. Doesn't he say, like, he has, toward the end, like, he has his, he has some, because when he wants to assign her to the ship, he mentions that he has some pull to kind of do whatever he wants. Yes, he yeah. says, Starfleet has told me to uh, do whatever it takes to win this war. Yeah. But, has, is he perhaps over-interpreting whatever his actual uh, mission was? Because I know the mission from Starfleet would not be, do whatever you want. Starfleet is a little more precise than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good question. I don't, it's, we'll have to see. Yeah, that's yeah. the only thing that'll be interesting we'll to see. We'll have to see, you know, how far it gets. I mean, look... You know, John, as I mentioned last week, you know, Jonathan Frakes let it spill that they're going to go to the Mirror Universe this season. Maybe we're already there. Oh. As I as I mentioned last time, yeah. I would see that a Mirror Universe, oh my god. Hold on, it's all coming together. Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass. What is Alice? How does Alice get there? She goes and through th- a mirror. And through the looking glass is the name of a Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episode. So, look, we may be... Grasping at Sarazi, but what if we are in the mirror universe? This already? is the most fun speculation because yeah. it's all coming together now. I did yeah. not even think of that. Well, so. and, I, and I will say this, and I, I read an article about this on my way to work this morning. Um, they further mentioned Alex Kurtzman, one of the producers, pretty much confirmed that they are going to be doing the mirror universe. And they showed a few photos when I, I believe it was Entertainment Weekly was on the set. And you saw two different dedication plaques for the Discovery. One said USS, other one said ISS. ISS is what the is the prefix in the mirror universe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, um, wow. I mean, how how what would your reaction be if we found out that we were already that we were in the mirror universe? I would love it. Or I mean, if there was some crossover with the mirror, like part I mean, of the mirror universe had come here, or the ship, or he I mean, was in the, the mirror universe, or he's in the mirror. And he yeah, shaved I mean, his goatee off. Because it's the thing, like you know. When you're in the mirror universe, you know, you know, you've got the, you you have all kinds of um, branding of the Terran Empire all over the place. Right. So you know that you're there. Right. But what if it's just, what if it's just Lorca? What if 
he came over from the mirror universe. Right. Or there's some, yeah, some covert mirror universe. This could be crazy talk, but This could be crazy talk. This is wild speculation time. Wild speculation. But I think it's... The seeds are being planted. It is fun to think about. Yes, especially... And With the little cookie the seeds crumbs are being planted, as are, being as, as are the mushrooms. As are the mushrooms. Yes. Mushrooms are being planted. Oh, do they? Have um, to, they don't even need to be planted because they're already there. <laughs> um, so to wrap up, uh, scale of one to ten, how would you rate it? Oh, uh, well, all right. I I can't do the scale of one to ten, but I can tell you that I liked it far more than the first two episodes. Yeah. Well, again, this is the true pilot of the show. Yes. Yes. Um. I enjoyed it far more. I'm invested in the story now. Um, um, you know, I want to find out what's going on with the captain. I want yeah. to find out more about Burnham. Do I even like Burnham? I can't tell. Um, so, yeah, I, I really liked it. And I'm, I'm definitely more invested now. Um, I will do a scale from 1 to 10 rating. And I will give it an 8. On a scale of 1 to 10. I'll give it an 8. Okay. Yeah. It's... I want to see more. You know, this is not self-contained, obviously. This is... A continuing story, so uh, yeah, I want to see more. I want to see what's what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um. Anything else before we wrap? No. <laughs> okay. Edit this out. So that'll do it um, for episode for our second episode of the Discovery We Trust. Um, we, will be back, we will be back next time to discuss the other episode, which name is so long I keep forgetting Lambs what it's called. Lambs get slaughtered. Lamb chops play one. Um, the Butcher's Knife cares not for the Lamb's Cry. It's like a mishmash between a TOS title and a DS9 title. So we will be talking about that on the next episode of the Discovery We Trust. But for now, uh, let's get the hell out of here. Ah, I thought for sure you were going to say live long and prosper. No. That'd be the, that'd be the cliche thing to say. Alright. No, beam me up Scotty would be this cliche thing. Beam us out. Beam us out Scotty. Really.